Welcome to the show, everybody. I hope you enjoy this episode. I was lucky enough to get the authors of I think my favorite book that I read in 2020. Really meaningful stuff in understanding yourself and understanding what you know, why you know it, what you think you know, uh, that sort of thing. If you if you get frustrated with the human condition, <laughs> sometimes uh, this is also a really good book in understanding some of the reasons why uh, people seemingly behave in irrational ways or act like they know more than they do and that sort of thing. It's a bunch of stuff that we all do and it's easier to to notice in others. And I, I've found it to be not just incredibly informative and uh, helped me become a, a better thinker, but also uh, understanding others a little bit more. And you might be saying, but Shane, you don't show a ton of understanding for human nature all of the time. You seem just as frustrated as anybody else <laughs> regarding humanity, if not more so. And you're right. But imagine where I'd be if I wasn't working on it, if I wasn't trying to learn more and educate myself. Whew. Wouldn't want to be that guy. So check out the book, The Knowledge Illusion. It's really great. If you want to support this show, go to patreon.com slash Shane Moss. I did my first plug for Patreon in a while last week. Uh, and I should remind people more often. I'm, I'm glad that you guys listened to my circumstances and what my plans are for kind of setting things up for the future and talking about future touring plans and where I'm at with now with things. And I got, I already received some support from you guys. And so if more of you could be inspired to support this show, it'd mean a lot less stress in my life. I'm not talking about, I'm not going to go out buying Lamborghinis <laughs> or anything with my Patreon support, but it would be nice to not be on a knife's edge all of the time with paying for the costs of my podcasts and etc. Um, so that helps quite a bit. And the more uh, the more resources we have for the show, the more I can put into it as well. So it also helps you. Plus, you'll get a warm and fuzzy feeling by helping out a and supporting a show that you hopefully gain a lot from and gain a lot of insights and uh, and knowledge and new ways of thinking about things. I hope that's the case. And uh, other than that, if you uh, if you're strap if you're on that knife's edge too, hoof, you know, don't don't uh, you do you first, of course. But there are free ways of supporting the show. You can always go to uh, the iTunes um, page of this show and write a nice review. You can uh, comment on YouTube and uh, help kind of engage others in the conversation there and help give a little algorithm boost. Tricky thing navigating this uh, new the the uh, the world of of podcasting and now trying to do video casting. So. I'd appreciate that support and otherwise just uh, make sure and check out the book, The Knowledge Illusion. I hope you enjoy this interview. It's really fun. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. 
Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I have a fantastic episode today. As you know, since COVID, I've been doing all of these remotely. I used to do them in person at my tour. I'd look up a university. I'd find guests that way. And what's been really cool about uh, uh, about doing things remotely is that I can kind of get the guests that I want when things pop into my head. I read this book, The Knowledge Illusion. I actually had Phil Fernback on the show. Is it Bach or Back? Fernback. Fernback. Um, on the show a few years ago, when the book was uh, had come out, I had read a couple chapters, skimmed the rest. And then about a year ago, I read the entire book and it's been on my mind. It just keeps on popping up into my head. Um, I've referenced it on other podcasts. And so just a couple days or a week or so ago, I decided to reach out and get the authors of the book uh, for a conversation all about it. And it's tons of stuff that uh, you and the listeners, regular listeners of the show, this is way in our wheelhouse. You're going to love this conversation. So please welcome to the show, Steve Solomon and Philip Fernbach, everybody. The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. So as we start out, first off, let me, I'll just have each of you kind of introduce yourselves in your backgrounds uh, independently. Uh, Steve, do you want to go first? Sure. My name's Steve Sloman, and uh, I have been a cognitive scientist at Brown University at since 1892, or it feels that way, actually since 1992. Um, I study uh, all things having to do with high-level cognition, uh, from categorization and reasoning to decision-making, and most recently, collective cognition, how we think with other people. Fantastic. Phil? My name is Phil Fernbeck. I um, actually studied with Steve at Brown University. Uh, many years ago. And uh, I also uh, have a background in cognitive science, um, but I now work in the business school at the University of Colorado and uh, study all kinds of different stuff around um, consumer decision-making, uh, political decision-making, and a lot of work on financial decision-making as well. Fantastic. Um, so why don't you, uh, why don't you guys introduce a little bit about what is the knowledge illusion? What is this book about? Well, the book has uh, two themes. One has to do with human ignorance, uh, the fact that we know relatively little. More importantly, we know less than we think we do. And the second theme has to do with why it is that we manage as human beings to accomplish so much despite the fact that we're relatively ignorant. And the claim is we accomplish so much because we work together with other people. So even though individually we're relatively ignorant, as a collective, we uh, are pretty smart. Yeah, that's a, so the uh, we're specialists in, and uh, and then work collectively together. This is one of the things I don't know if I'm 
jumping into the right part of this book. But one of the things that I've shared so many times recently was the, and I'm, I'm probably butchering my recall every time I do it, but it was the idea of uh, the the study that you referenced about the made up a said that scientists had discovered a new mineral or something like that. And could you talk about about that study? Because I I think it leads in really well to so much of this stuff. Um, do you yeah, want me to do it? That's, I, yeah, it's actually my study. So Phil is being generous enough to let me describe it. Uh, so what uh, I did with my colleague, Nat Rab is tell people that uh, scientists had discovered uh, this new thing. We, we actually had various things, but one of them was a glowing rock. We said, so they've discovered this glowing rock. And one group, we said, um, and they fully understand how it works. We didn't tell them how it works. We just said the scientists fully understand how it works. How well do you understand how it works? Um, and another group, we said the same thing, except we said, and the scientists, they haven't yet figured out how it works. They do not understand how it works. How well do you understand how it works? And so in neither case are we giving any information about how the thing works. But when we ask people how well they understand, they got this little bump in understanding from the fact that scientists understood. So it's as if the sense of understanding is contagious. Um, and we've shown this now with political policies and uh, other people have shown it with how we evaluate um, mental health disorders. Um, it's actually an incredibly robust finding. Um, and, and, and so the idea is that our sense of understanding doesn't come just from what we actually understand, but we inherit our understanding from the people around us. Mm. So uh, the idea kind of uh, being that um, I I always love butchering uh, uh, authors' works uh, on the show, but the idea is, and, and then you'll have the opportunity to correct me. The idea is, is that we kind of what we perceive as our mind and knowledge that exists inside of our brain a lot of times we kind of outsource or have almost compartmentalized a lot of our knowledge socially through the groups that we're in through uh, if I, if I know someone that's a mechanic, maybe I over perceive my ability to uh, fix a car. Um, and it's, it's sort of, is the idea, would it be fair to say that we kind of misunderstand the ability to know something with knowledge, with knowledge that we already have. Sorry, it's it's always a challenge to <laughs> to uh, navigate the the. the We're both uh, very the opinionated. Dual, dual yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so apologies if we step on each other's toes a little bit. Um, but yeah, no that's worries. that's precisely the idea. Um, there's a phenomenon that we talk about in the book a lot uh, called the illusion of explanatory depth, um, which is. The idea that we overestimate how well we understand things. Uh, our sort of initial impression is that we understand things pretty well. Um, but then when we try to sit down and actually suss it out to try to explain it, we realize that our knowledge doesn't go very deep. And in fact, most of what we think we know about the world is really just pointers to information that's stored elsewhere, not in our own minds. 
And um, I think that Steve's study on contagious sense of understanding shows that one reason that that occurs, maybe the most important reason is because of our, uh, by, by virtue of participating in these groups where, um, where we as individuals don't know very much, but the people around us know, and that gives us kind of the feeling that we ourselves know. How many individual differences are in this? I would I would love to hear um, some different contexts that alter this, some personality differences that alter this, because it does seem to be the case that some people also have, say, low self-esteem and underestimate how much they'll they know about something or or guess that they would do worse on a test than they actually would, even though the general public might overestimate their ability uh, to do things on the test. I, I know that uh, I, I sometimes I've been doing this for eight years now, uh, talking with scientists, so it's not. Uh, I, I don't have as much anxiety about it as when I started, but uh, still to this day, it's 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 often intimidating talking to someone that's a expert in a, in a thing that I maybe at best have like some one on one understanding, and sometimes I like kind of nervously, okay, is this what you're trying to say? And, and, uh, and someone will be like, yep, you nailed it. I'm like, I did. (laughs) That's that's shocking to me. I was kind of grasping at straws. So there's, and and then there's other times in life when I overestimate my, uh, my knowledge and things and everything. So, so it seems like there's, uh, some case by case differences and, and personality differences and mood can impact this as well do you have thoughts on that oh yeah no i mean you're absolutely right there are certainly case-by-case differences there are very few people in the world overestimate their understanding of quantum mechanics right Mm -hmm. so i mean you take anything that you know to be complicated or something that you've had personal experience with and failed at right so anything that you've tried to understand and failed you're Mm -hmm. obviously not going to get this effect so it it it's more sort of a question of um, things that we're familiar with and work with on a regular basis, right? So you get a big effect for like toilets. People think they understand how toilets work, right? People think they understand how ballpoint pens work, right? Mm. Like everyday objects that we're very comfortable with, we feel like we understand because we're successful with them. On one hand, there are, as you point out, certain kinds of items that show a bigger effect. There are also certain kinds of people that show a bigger effect, Um, namely people who tend to think before they speak show a smaller effect than the vast majority of people who don't tend to think before they speak. Mm, how how is that? Me- how are you measuring that? I'll let Phil answer that. Well, first of all, I want to just push back on this idea that people don't on, uh, overestimate their understanding of quantum mechanics. Um, like it, <laughs> every time I go on a, a first date, or, or 50% of the time at least, there's a lot of talk about uh, quantum entanglement and how that explains energies in the universe. So, well, yeah. I want to know who you're dating, Phil. I'm on Phil's side on this. So I also, in, in case you couldn't tell from this beard, I've, I'm also kind of um, connected in some of the psychedelic and new agey communities and stuff. And and uh, uh, although I, I have differing perspectives, but I enjoy 
a lot of different communities. And wow, there is a lot of quantum <laughs> pseudoscience going on uh, in that. And and so, yeah, I think I might side with Phil on that, on that one a little bit. But that's it might be it might be a, a generational thing. Yeah, as well. maybe. Maybe I'm hanging out with the wrong people, you know, <laughs> or I'm, the right ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I haven't been going on that many dates lately. I'll, I'll, which my wife will be happy to know. <laughs> but um, so so the the uh, the uh, individual difference that Steve was talking about is called cognitive reflection, and um, mm. this is actually uh, a uh, a scale that was developed by a guy named Shane Frederick at Yale. And um, it basically measures your tendency to um, to fall for trick questions, and so it's it's a it's a short test where um, where there's a right answer, but the wrong answer pops into your head. So it's kind of a trick question, and so everybody like, can get uh, to the right answer, like the a bat and ball, thing. exactly like the bat and ball problem. Yeah, so just yeah, yeah. just so for the listeners that have probably heard this before, but. Uh, uh, uh let's see what how's it go is is it that a uh bat is one dollar more than a, a ball and the total is a dollar ten is that what it is steve's shaking his hand or, so a bat and a ball cost a dollar ten yeah right the bat costs a dollar more than the ball how much does the ball cost yeah yeah so the, and the answer is not 10 cents yeah yeah but intuitively, it's sort of what everyone thinks. So it's questions like that is what you're saying, Phil. Exactly. And so um, there's debate out there about exactly what uh, scores on that test really measure, like what's the underlying cognitive process. And it's probably multiple things. But one thing that people have talked about at indexing is the tendency to use your system one versus your system two, which is that a concept that your, your listeners will be familiar with? Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, uh, let's assume that someone's listening to this show for the first time anyway. It, it never okay. hurts to hear someone rephrase these things in a new way. Sure, but but sure. Uh, th thinking fast and slow being kind of the, the huge uh, landmark book that a lot of people are familiar with. Right. That, that book has popularized that idea a lot. Actually, Steve wrote one of the first papers on that. Uh, uh, topic in the cognitive science literature back in uh, was that in the early 90s Steve? was 96 it was published 96 um and nice. it, the, the idea is called dual process or dual systems theory and it's the idea that um we have two ways of making judgments and uh, our system one is fast and it's um evolutionarily more ancient and it's automatic and we're not aware of what's happening behind the scenes when, when, when we're making a judgment. And then we have system two, which is the more evolutionarily recent system, which is more deliberative and thoughtful. And we're actually aware of the process, the cognitive processes that are going on as we're thinking through um, a problem. And those, uh, both of those systems are, are, are always engaged when we're dealing with a kind of problem and they're sort of working in parallel to try to solve the problem. So they can sometimes come to different answers. And so that's these uh, bat and ball problem. Those kinds of problems are, are cases where your system one and system two lead to different answers. And um, some people um, tend to um, have system two kick in a little bit more to inhibit 
the incorrect response of system one. And so we think that that is relevant to this knowledge illusion, because if you, if I ask you, how does something work? And you just, you know, with system one sort of nod and say, oh yeah, I know how that works because of whatever it is, because the people around you know, or whatever. Um, uh, that's a system one kind of process, but some people will think a little more thoughtfully about it and they'll stop themselves. And actually this is something that can be learned as well. I've learned to do this more, um, which is that you stop yourself and, 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 and sort of try to explain it before answer. And if that, if you do that, if you're more likely to do that, um, then you're more, you're less likely to uh, be susceptible to, to overestimating how well you understand things all the time. Hmm. And I, th- I think it's kind of important to note as well that that using using a system one doesn't doesn't mean someone's like dumb or so it's a, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why we don't sit and deliberate and have analysis paralysis of every step that we take in life and and kind of go through the motions and go through autopilot can be really efficient in in many instances. Yeah. So so can I just uh, make the point that. It's true that some people have more hubris than others. Some people are more confident than others when they're talking about things. But we all depend on other people all Mm -hmm. the time, right? So, I mean, that's something that's universal. And you, you might argue that the smartest people are the ones who depend on others the most, right? That's, in a sense, what makes them smart. So, it's important to clarify whether you're talking about the extent to which we fail to be calibrated with regard to how much we know versus the extent to which we live in a community of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people differ with regard to their degree of calibration, but I don't think people differ with regard to their dependence on other people. Mm-hmm. That's what makes us smart in a way. Right. So it's very rational to depend on other people. Hmm. And how much is, I don't know how you uh, quantify the idea of taking things for granted. I'll I'll give a personal example. You kind of intuitively assume that a door handle works and that, uh, uh, that you know how a door handle works and that you know you're going to pull the lever and it's going to open the door. And two days ago, I did that in the bathroom and it didn't work. I was locked into the bathroom, <laughs> locked in the bathroom. And I was like, huh, I don't know how door handles work once they're once they're broken and had to crawl out of the bathroom. Fortunately, it was on the ground level. Had to crawl out of the bathroom window, get a get a screwdriver, <laughs> take the door handle apart, and there's a there's a little piece in it that that had broken that that changes the depth in which the uh, the whatever. It's called mechanism that actually lo- locks the yeah. the the uh, the door, um, and so so the idea is is that like you know normally <laughs> it, a, a lot of these things feel intuitive or you take it for granted or you think who really cares how a door handle works and then something breaks or your toilet clogs or whatever else and then you become deeply aware of of your lack of knowledge on that on that thing that you normally use every day this happens with computer problems and everything else for for all of us so uh so I, how much is it 
things that, and actually now that I'm saying that, that's it, it actually it's sort of the things that work the most regularly are probably the things that we take the most for granted and assume the most about. Whereas something like a computer, more people are like, oh, I stink at computers because your email just got hacked or you you just had your computer freeze up. And that's something that we all have to deal with IT issues every day, where every day we don't necessarily need to deal with door handle issues. You know, like one of the major uh, one, one of the big things we talk about in the book is like, what is cognition for? Why did cognition evolve? And um, the argument we make is that cognition evolved to support action so that um, your mind is really there in order for you to be able to figure out more adaptive actions um, so that you can be have better fitness mm. in the world. What we really, uh, the kind of details that we're going to store are going to be details that are going to allow us to be more effective actors in the world. And the nature of the world is that um, there's levels of um, like, like the world has a lot of different levels at which you could analyze it. Um, there's sort of infinite complexity. You can go down the, the wormhole of almost anything and analyze it at more and more abstract and detailed levels and so on. Um, but we tend to, um, when we store information, it's at the level of detail that kind of is the, the most useful for us. Mm-hmm. So like you never need to know exactly how um, a door handle works, let alone like the metallurgy involved in the, in the lock or, or, or the, the quantum mechanics involved in the metallurgy and so on. Um, what you need to know is sort of how to, how to twist it to open it. I mean, that obviously fails sometimes. So I'm, this, lucky. The, I'm glad. The, the, the sense I have is that the things that, that we overestimate our knowledge about the most are the things that are the most central to our lives. So door handles are actually pretty central, right? Or at least they're common, they're frequent. We, we, they're very familiar because they're such a deep part of our lives. But then there are lots of other things that are not like door handles, like human relationships, which are also really central to our lives and which mm. I think show exactly the same kinds of effects, right? Like we think we understand other people better than we do, or we think we understand our, a particular relationship we have better than in fact we do. And we're, you know, sometimes sadly surprised when, when the relationship goes awry. Or another kind of example are um, political things that are related to our ideologies, to our most basic beliefs about how the world works on a social or political level, Right. We're also very tied to those things, and we feel like we understand them. But you ask people to explain this policy that they feel very strongly about, and more often than not, they don't have a whole lot to say about it, right? Mm. Or, you know, values, like I value loving other people, right? Ask me to explain that. I mean... Who knows, right? You have to be a really thoughtful philosopher to have something interesting to say, or or maybe fiction writer or something yeah. to have something really interesting to say about that. So. You you very rarely hear people talk about love in terms of uh, an evolved emotional contract meant to. Uh, well, you don't live in a psychology about- department the way I do, so I can imagine you don't hear people talk about it that way. <laughs> um, uh, so... Uh, 
man, humans are so messy. But the, the this social aspect of there, there's I feel like there's just a little bit. There's a lot more going on than oh, I know a mechanic, therefore I overestimate my ability to fix a car, my knowledge about how cars work. Because there's also, as social creatures, there's so much advertising that we do. Uh, Phil's trying to impress his date with a quantum physics off and uh and and <laughs> and confidence does really well and in status seeking and these sorts of things and 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 even in terms of just getting out of bed and and uh evaluating um what's possible in in life and what we might be able to accomplish. It seems like there's a little bit of a nudge toward, uh, there's kind of an evolved benefit to bumping up, uh, you know, our confidence a a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. that's true. There's go ahead, Phil. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely evidence for that, um, that, uh, people react to confidence. And so it does convey social benefits for sure. But I think it's, it's deeper than that. Um, like that's definitely part of what's going on is that people are fronting, like they understand things, but, um, there's, that's only part of the story. Like in our, in our studies, in the studies in the literature, um, when you ask people to explain, they are genuinely surprised a lot of the time when they try to explain, it's not just like they're fronting and they're saying, I know this, um, to, to try to impress somebody. They're genuinely surprised when they, um, when they, when they fail to be able to explain this stuff. So I definitely think, and there is something to what you're saying. I mean, part of this is going to be kind of people, uh, people wanting to, um, put forth the, the impression that they know what they're talking about. Yeah. But there's also con there's, there's, there's conscious fronting, but then there, I I think that there's also some subconscious self-deception that, that goes on a little bit as well. Don't you think? So I, I don't know. I think it's important to distinguish overconfidence from the knowledge illusion, right? So you're talking about the fact that people are more sure of, of, things. They're more sure of what's going to happen in the future, or they're more sure that um, they know what happened in the past than in, than in fact they should be. And that's true. People are overconfident. Mm-hmm. And, and I also think your point that that serves an important purpose is really important. Like, you know, who wants a doctor who's not confident, Right. If my, if my doctor tells me I should get this treatment, then I want that doctor to be sure that I should get this treatment. I The treatment's probably more likely to work if the doctor's more confident about it, right? right? And in fact, there's reason to believe that c- being confident and in fact being overconfident um, makes us happier. It causes us to do things we wouldn't otherwise do. We take chances, right? The people who are not overconfident are, are, tend to be depressed, right? There's actually evidence that depressed people are better calibrated in their confidence. But, mm. but notice that, as Phil pointed out, that's not exactly what our book's about. Our book mm. is about how well we are calibrated with regard to our knowledge, right? right. So do we know what we know? 
Mm. Um, and it's and it's a slightly different take. It's like I think of it as a subspecies of confidence. Mm-hmm. And and as Phil says, it's not just about demonstrating that we know things that we don't know, because in fact that often can get us in a lot of trouble, right? To, to pretend that you're the world's expert would lead people to think you're going to solve a problem that in the end you can't solve. Mm. So, you know, or thinking that I understand my toilet might cost me an afternoon of digging around in my toilet and only after I've broken many things calling the plumber, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and it's true that we've all had that experience, <laughs> at least I have, Uh but that degree of calibration, I think, mostly comes from someplace else, not just the desire to signal things to other people, but the fact that what we understand sits in the heads of other people to a large degree. Mm. And that's okay, right? The world is infinitely complex, and so we depend on the knowledge that's sitting in the heads of other people. So a lot of what knowledge is, is really trust, it's the degree to which we trust that somebody else understands something. That's interesting. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I, another, I another aspect of, of yeah. this that I think is important to keep in mind is that, that we, we, we grow attached to our beliefs. You know, it's not like um, we can just say, you know, you say you're wrong about something. Okay, let's get rid of it. Our beliefs um, tend to be something that we try to maintain. And so... Um, uh, and so uh, it's it's uh, it, it 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 can be the case that um, when we're uh, faced with counter evidence and so on, that um, we tend to want to maintain those beliefs. And so um, we're uh, there's this mutually reinforcing thing of like, I know what I'm talking about. I believe in X, and those things kind of kind of support each other. So um, it's not just about fronting, but it's also like we want to um, feel like we know what we're talking about because that supports the beliefs that we want to be true about the world. Hmm. Does that make any sense? I'm yeah, sure. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, 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 <laughs> how, how often have you been confronted with people hearing um, about kind of what your book is about or hearing some of the, the things that you're sharing and then them being like, Oh, I already knew that. <laughs> how, <laughs> how, how often? Uh, Cause I, I had this interaction on social media recently where someone wanted to like get in with it, to get into it with me, probably like an anti-vaxxer or something like that. And, and like quick took a cursory kind of glance at some of my social posts, saw that I had someone on, uh, recently talking about the evolution of, of dogs and without listening or anything else wrote the comment to like, what kind of Dunning Kruger stuff are, are you sharing that, that, uh, everyone knows that dogs evolved from wolves. <laughs> like, Oh, you actually are demonstrating exactly what Dunning Kruger. Yeah. You know, you know, when our book came out and using the word Dunning Kruger to attack me, well falling for Dunning Kruger. (laughs) When our book came out of the, you know, the first thing I did of course was to go to Amazon to check out the reviews, what people had to say about it. And the very first review gave it like a one out of five and said, Oh, just another book about heuristics. 
Yeah. And then, like, the book isn't about heuristics at all. That's just not what it's about. Yeah. But this person, you know, felt confident enough to go public and pan the book based on not having read it. As I recall, the book wasn't even out yet. So that's, <laughs> that's a pretty special kind of review. Well, yeah. yeah, that may be true. Oh, the internet. Yeah, because I, I heard Dan Ariely used to he he would he would share he he would give a lecture or whatever and or give a talk and and afterwards people would be like yeah but don't doesn't everyone already know that and so he started giving people uh, surveys ahead of time uh, to to test it kind of kind of exploiting the uh, the illusion of explanatory depth of of asking people how certain how they perceived certain things to work and then when he explained it it kind of corrected for they realized they were actually surprised by the information whereas when he didn't do that it was like as soon as they learned it, they already believe they they're like, oh, that's what I've always <laughs> believed. There's this funny comic Doug Stanhope um, who has some joke I'm I'm going to butcher about how uh, it, as soon as he learns something, within thirty minutes he's like. It, he's like yelling at someone else for not knowing the thing that he just learned 30 minutes ago. <laughs> you know, uh, no, that's definitely true. I mean, that, that happens all the time. Uh, but, I, but in some sense, actually the response to our book has been the opposite for most people. Yeah. Um, in the sense that a lot of people, uh, you know, they may have known it, and, you know, you're right. Like, you first got to get people to tell you what they know so that they're surprised when they discover that you can tell them something they don't already know. That's how any good author, you know, nonfiction author writes a, writes a, a book or a paper. But um, my impression is that people are very happy to learn that other people don't know as much as they think they do. Mm. Um, you know, it's kind of uh, reassuring to learn that you're not the only one who who has discovered that you're ignorant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's because there's something going because sometimes you know I guess it can go the the way of uh, uh, validating someone's sense of uh, superiority or or whatever. Um, as well like oh well all all of these people making these foolish decisions and i'm and i make the uh i think through things and make the correct ones but uh but it is it is such a relief to as as someone i'm pretty openly hard on myself i think most people are pretty hard on themselves and just hide that from uh from others but it is so reassuring um to understand oh this is just part of the human condition it's also when you get frustrated with your relatives that you don't see eye to eye with or whatever else it, it really helps uh, a sense of empathy and it helps um uh, kind of just relating to others generally to learn about these things and and by the way i as as someone who is familiar already you know had some familiarity with cognitive biases and heuristics and everything i thought this this book was one of the uh most well-written um uh 
uh, pop science books I've I've read in a while. It really stuck with me. So well, I encourage people to check that. it out. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to, just because you guys uh, had mentioned this earlier, I know one of my, I know my listeners, one of their favorite subjects is mental health. And you mentioned it earlier. What, how does mental health relate to um, uh, some of the stuff in this book? Well, I'll let Phil answer that question, but I'll just briefly tell you a story. So, so when I said most people are happy to hear that others feel like um, they're more ignorant than they than they think. Uh, I got an email soon after the book was published from someone who said that they have been suffering from mental health issues their entire lives. And, and it's so reassuring to hear that they're not the only ones who feel ignorant. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's one relation. But uh, yeah. Phil, you want to take that? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what else to add. On that, I, I know there is some research looking at illusion of explanatory depth in the con- in the context of mental health uh, disorders, and showing that people really drastically uh, overestimate how well they feel like they understand those kinds of things, um, and which can lead to stigmas. I've done some work with a graduate student of mine named, uh, I should say, the graduate student has done the work with me. His name's Babak Hematian, and. Um, what we showed is that people will use mental health terms. And in fact, practicing um, psychotherapists will use mental health terms, even when those terms have no meaning, as long as the term is entrenched in the community. So we create these scenarios where the term is completely circular, right? Like it's as if you're saying um, we define a schizophrenic to be someone who has thought disorders. Here's this person who has thought disorders. Why do? Why is that the case? Why do they have thought disorders? And the answer is because they're schizophrenic. And yeah, and that's obviously completely circular, right? And in our right. scenarios, the, we we construct them so that these terms are completely circular. Even practicing psychotherapists are happy to use the terms and think that they have explanatory value as long as the term is entrenched in their community. As long as Mm. other people use the terms, like they find them in a reference book or something like that, then they think they're perfectly valid terms to use. If someone just made them up, then no, then, you know, they're circular. They don't have any meaning. I'm going to dismiss them. But if they're entrenched, and we do this all the time, like we use the word, you know, my favorite example is organic, right? We say, oh, this food is good because it's organic. Well, you know, what does organic actually mean? It, it, it has at least five different meanings, depending on, you know, which supermarket in Berkeley you go to. Uh, and, and a lot of the words we use have that property. Their meaning is really, really minimal, but they seem to have value because they're entrenched in a community because they're used by a community. Hmm. Natural so, is worse than organic. Natural. Organic at least one. has like a legal, organic at least has a legal definition. Natural doesn't <laughs> yeah. Anything. yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's a, uh, that's a popular one. Um, what's if, if someone wanted to, if someone's listening and they're 
they're like, well, geez, I want to be self-aware. I don't want I would I don't want to be erroring because I'm too entrenched in a uh, uh, the wrong um, belief system and, and misjudging something. What are some of the things that people can do to uh, uh, to monitor that or change that? Well, Phil, do you want to? Yeah. I mean, so one thing is it's really hard. I mean, um, we're so embedded in our communities that everything that our communities believe we, we tend to take on and they just seem dead obvious. Um, and like, they must be true. And a lot of, and sometimes that is the case. Um, the things that our communities believe are correct. Um, but you know, it's, it's like, it's like very hard to tell sometimes when you're in a house of mirrors. Um, Mm. and so, um, I think like one, one thing that I've gotten in the habit of doing is just sort of habitually asking myself the question, like, do I understand this? Um, but also I think, um, people don't pay enough attention to sort of, um, the credibility of the sources that they're getting their information from to the extent that those, that information comes from someone in their community and it's, um, something that they sort of already agree with. And so being a little more thoughtful and deliberative about sort of questioning the source of the information that you're getting is something that you can sort of make a habit of as well. So those are, that's two things that I've sort of uh, tried to implement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the knowledge illusion is the fact that when you ask people to explain something, they discover they can't and that reduces their sense of understanding, right? So simply try to explain things to yourself. If someone says, you know, why is gun control important? Then explain it to yourself before you, you know, assert how important it really is. Uh, You know, I think though, I mean, obviously that's not a silver bullet because sometimes we can't explain things that nevertheless are going to continue to be really important to us, right? Because not all of our beliefs beliefs are are housed in a sense of of causal understanding. Um, Some of them are based in other kinds of basic values. Like if you ask me, you know, why shouldn't I walk down the street spitting in people's faces? I mean, I, I can say something, right? I can come up with a bit of an explanation. But the truth is that I just think it's the wrong thing to do, right? And even if COVID weren't a threat, and even if I knew that my saliva was perfectly pure and I wasn't going to pass any diseases to anybody, it still is not something I should do uh, because my value system and my society's value system says it's the wrong thing to do. So while explanation is really important in order to calibrate your sense of understanding, I don't think there's any simple answer to the question, you know, when am I justified to believe something or not? Mm. Though I do think that we can at least be self-aware about why we believe things. And, and in fact, sometimes saying, well, because this is what's right. <laughs> this is what everybody around me believes. That's mm-hmm. probably sufficient some of the time. Yeah, there's, I, I mean, it seems like the the stakes change depending on context as well. Like to think your, your local sports team is the best team is 
pretty harmless. It's probably it's probably going to help your life more to believe your your local sports team is the best team and root for that and and know the water cooler talk than whether like logically and statistically they are actually the best team. And and then there's other social things like uh. It, you know, a global, a global pandemic. And uh, you, you see a lot of people queuing into whatever the social norms are, right or wrong, as, as someone who's just started to travel around uh, recently, you know, some areas, people still wear a lot of masks or have higher rates of vaccines, other areas, they don't wear masks at all. And, and there's, there's a, it's interesting, because if it was, if it was, if there was a problem, like, how do we build a jet engine? People wouldn't kind of uh, get their neighbors read on how to <laughs> build a jet engine. But there's a there's a global pandemic, an incredibly uh, uh, complex um, epidemiological problem. And people are like, I'll just kind of ask my cousin and see what they think about. <laughs> Look, I, <laughs> about I think things. what's complicated about these cases is that there are, two kinds of issues, right? One kind of issue is what should we value? What should we think is important? And people may differ in how averse they are to risk, right? Some mm -hmm. people might say, I want to stay as far away from the dreaded coronavirus as I possibly can. And other people might say, it's not such a big deal. I'm willing to take the risk. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's a matter of personal preference, right? Or maybe it's a matter, it's actually a matter of societal preference preference because if you know other people are in fact making a decision for you if they refuse to right. wear a mask or refuse to socially distance but right. the but the question of value and preferences is separate and distinct from the question of how does this thing work right like do right. masks reduce the incidence of the disease and the answer is yes absolutely yes and if you say no i would say you're wrong Right. Yeah. You know, does social distance matter? Yes. Social distancing matter. So there are questions of belief about how things work that that do have definitive answers. We may not know what the answers are, but, you know, like there God is an objective does. reality. Right. Yeah. And then there are questions of preference. And the thing about human beings is we conflate those two. Right. We, we don't make a sharp distinction between those two issues. So if our preference is to not be risk averse, then we'll claim that masks don't work as a way of justifying our behavior when you're just it's a, it's a complete confusion mm. between two separate issues. Has there I'm sorry to ask you a bunch of questions of things that I, I I'm not sure actually in your book, but, but um, oh, we love making uh, stuff uh, up. Don't worry. Yeah, about that. yeah, yeah, I I, I um. Uh, just, just because I have genuinely just have so many thoughts for you guys ba based on things in your book, ha have there been, um, are there any studies or anything about say people that travel more people that have more, um, like diverse friend groups, um, in terms of, uh, you know, maybe having, you might have your academic friends. You might have you might be in a band as well, and you might then and you have your family. You know, everyone has a few different kinds of groups that they affiliate with, um, or or even 
people that are like job hoppers and have have spent a little more time working in different industries, uh, if there's any kind of difference in their susceptibility to um, groupthink or uh, or in, in any of these um, kind of uh, the cognitive reflection stuff or anything like that. I mean, you'd have a hard time sussing out the causal directionality of an effect like that, right? Right. Does their behavior in terms of their friend groups and their job hopping and, and everything depend on their sort of constitution, the way they, mm-hmm. their mind works, or is it the other way around? And presumably it's some combination of, the, of both. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know of a study like that. I mean, that would be kind of hard to pull off. Yeah. Um, yeah. Huh. All right. No, I'll just ask. It, 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 just, it just seems... Uh, this is probably me patting myself on the back, but it's uh, someone that I've, I've traveled quite a bit and have a bunch of different groups. And I, I remember kind of where I was before I uh, became a comedian, before I left my hometown and traveled and everything and kind of where I am now. And perhaps it's just aging and I would have arrived at many of the same conclusions. But it it seems like when you travel, when you take in different cultures, when you meet a lot of different groups of people, it's like you can't even help but just start thinking um, about uh, ways and terms of uh, um, uh, like which which groups get dug into certain belief systems. I, I think your hypothesis is is like almost certainly correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, one criticism that, that we have faced, and, and I think it's a fair criticism, is, you know, what, what do we mean by community? Because mm-hmm. we each have different communities, you know? So, um, you know, I, I, I play guitar, and so I have my community of musicians, and I play squash, which is a racket sport, and, and I have my community of squash players. And if you ask me a question... Um, about one of those domains, I'm going to be thinking about the relevant community, right? My, if, uh, and, and, and so if I'm attached to more communities, then I may suffer more of an illusion because I have a better sense that the community understands. Mm. Um, but it it's certainly the case that when i if you're thinking about knowledge right what i know and how knowledge is structured you have to first sort of pick out the relevant community the relevant group of people over which the knowledge is distributed over mm. and so if i'm a member of many communities you know i could probably get I'm probably more likely to get confused about who knows what, just because I have to keep more in mind. Hmm. It's kind of kind of an interesting question you're raising, though. It's like, it, say say you, you start off as 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 a, a fundamentalist Christian um, who believes you know the Earth is five thousand years old or whatever, and you like really strongly believe that, and then somehow you escape that community and you and you go to a different community that believes something very different. Are you now um, sort of uh, very open-minded and you think like many things could be true or are you really, really strongly attracted to the ideology of your new group? Um, so yeah, I could see it actually going mm. either way. Um, yeah. And there actually, I think there's evidence out there that um, c- 
converts, religious converts tend to often be the most devout and the strongest uh, members in terms of their, uh, their affiliations oh. with those communities. Interesting. I wonder if I've gone the other way with science. I was I was raised pretty strictly religious and and I'm a science convert. Well, there's also (laughs) some evidence that like dogmatism is a personality trait, right? Mm. That's like tied to uh, the 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 our thinking style. So some people, Mm. whatever they're doing, they're gonna more likely to be dogmatic than other people. Hmm. Interesting. But certainly, like, I, I lived in, in Spain for about nine months a couple of years ago. And uh, just, um, and I know Steve's lived abroad uh, several times throughout his academic career as well. Um, it certainly changes you just to see it does. how another culture lives and to realize that there's different ways to skin the cat in terms of the way to organize a society, the way yeah. to find happiness and all that kind of stuff. You know, so certainly like we're pretty small minded when we just stay in our own little areas. You know, when I was when I was in college and everybody's thinking about, um, OK, what do you do after college? It's like, well, you can I, I went to college in, uh, in um, Western Massachusetts. And it's like, OK, you can go to New York City. You can go to Boston. And like if you're really crazy, you can go to D.C. And if you did anything else, you were considered like a total lunatic. And it's like, okay, later on in life, I managed to get a job in Colorado. And I'm like, man, you know, why don't we think of this? Like moving to Colorado, it's pretty awesome. You know, yeah, and no one yeah. would have ever even thought of it because it wasn't what you did. So, yeah, I think you're onto something there. Um, well, I, all right. So I have one question. I, I have... I have three questions. I believe two of them are good. One I'm <laughs> uncertain of. I don't know if this is just kind of getting redundant with this question, but it's it seems like it, it, that in any given moment, we have to make the best use of the information that we have at the the moment. Kind of Bayesian processing is great. Everything if we if we kind of update uh, our our knowledge as more information comes in, terrific. But still, you know, I'm at a po- I'm in a podcast right now, or later I'll be in another situation where the best I have is the information that I have. That's what I have to work with. How much does that influence how much we then kind of overestimate that, like, you know, all, all that's in our head is all that there is <laughs> in, in terms of our kind of perceptual universe. And so how much does that kind of overestimate, uh, lead us to overestimate how much we know in something? Because we hear about things like egocentrism, and it sounds like a dirty word, but there is no escape from ego. We're all at the center of our own perceptual universe in one way or another, even if we are able to pop outside of it and imagine our we're a speck of sand in the universe or an alien anthropologist or whatever. Um, but we're, we're still, uh, where we're at. Yeah. Um, so, uh, a couple of things, I, I think a, a perfect example of what you're talking about is the curse of knowledge, right? So the curse of knowledge is the fact that we tend to think other people know what we know. Mm. Um, so, you know, a great example of it is, uh, you ask someone to tap out a song and then you ask them, what's the probability 
someone who hears you tapping out the song, just the rhythm of the song, um, will know what song you're tapping out. And people have the sense that, you know, the probability is pretty high, like maybe 50% or more. Interesting. Um, when in fact, it's like 2%, right? It's like there are yeah. very few songs you can pick out just from the rhythm. But wow, because <laughs> you're playing it in your head, you think everyone else can hear it too, right? Yeah, yeah. That's so, so, so interesting. The curse of knowledge is the bane of teaching, right? Like teachers just right. tend not to appreciate what their students don't know. And and so, you know, like you can you could vilify people for suffering from this illusion. But I think, you know, the point you made earlier is just, it's exactly right. That is, how else are you going to judge what other people know, right? Like, mm -hmm. how can I possibly know how much information you have about the song I'm tapping out when right. I'm in fact playing the song in my head? So I am really stuck in the sense, right? So this is, kind of the converse of the, the knowledge illusion. The curse of knowledge is that I think that you know what I know, whereas the knowledge illusion is that I think I know what you know. Mm. But the knowledge illusion doesn't suffer from this limitation in quite the same way, mm -hmm. right? Because I do have another basis for making the judgment. Namely, I'm asking what it is that I know, and I should be able to answer that question quite apart from you, right? Without thinking about what mm. you know. So, um, so I think sometimes, right, the fact that we live in a community of knowledge definitely has this property on some occasions that you pointed to, which is that we just have no other basis for judgment. You know, Adrian Ward, I don't know if you want to talk about these studies, but he's done some really elegant work um, demonstrating how context-dependent our sense of our own knowledge is. Mm. So he, he does work uh, where he like, gives people access to Google, right, and, and then asks them to predict how well they're going to do on a future general knowledge test. Or he doesn't give them access to Google and asks them how to predict how well they're going to do on a future general knowledge test. And if people have had access to Google, then they think they're going to do much better. And they actually think more highly of their own cognitive processes, mm -hmm. right? Because they've just been able to answer a bunch of questions mm -hmm. by, by searching for the answer on the internet, right? So the internet should get credit, but people give themselves credit. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah, it seems like that makes things messier than our, uh, you know, our, our hunter gatherer ancestors probably were a hair more aware of limitations that they might have. Whereas now with easy access to the Internet, this this portal to this uh, hive mind of, of uh, most of human knowledge uh, and, and all these archives uh, right in your pocket. It, it it seems like it's pretty hard for modern human to not overestimate their their knowledge or ability to know things. And it, what I love about this curse of knowledge is some of some of these things do feel like a hair 
um, like condescending judgments that we make sometimes. We're like, oh, how could someone believe that they're so stupid? But what, what's interesting with the curse of knowledge is is that we're overestimating someone's knowledge of something. It's it's almost like a, uh, yeah, it's almost thinking too positively in in that particular domain. Um, I I know that. I know that Steve has a meeting coming up, so I want to start wrapping up. But I, I have a couple of uh, I think these are these are going to be fun questions to end on. Um, first one: What was one of your favorite surprises that you had, or or times that that in writing this book? Uh, you experienced this um, you know, illusion of explanatory depth kind of uh, coming to light and and things that surprised you in the writing of the book. Uh, I've got a good one that I think is kind of funny. I think maybe we mentioned this in the book, actually, but um, we we um, we uh, we thought long and hard about what to call the book, um, what the title of the book should be. And um, Steve would send some suggestions and I'd say, those are all terrible. And I'd send some suggestions to him and he'd say, those are all terrible. <laughs> and um, so at some point, what I did was I took the book, um, uh, uh, I, I took the, uh, the, 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 the pitch we had written, like the synopsis of the book, and I put it into some uh, software that actually does word counts. And I created a word cloud of the words in the book. And um, it came up with this beautiful picture and the bigger words are more prevalent and the two biggest words, I don't know if the two biggest, but it said the knowledge illusion in this picture. And I was like, Oh man, it's a perfect title, the knowledge illusion. And um, I think it's so great. It really captures what we want to do. And I, I wrote to Steve, I said, I, I know what we should do. We should call it the knowledge illusion. He's like, I suggested that three months ago and you told me it was the worst title you'd ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Literally the worst title you'd ever heard. Well, That's thanks hilarious. for reminding me about that, Phil. I'd completely uh, forgotten. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Steve, something, yeah. did you have something that you uh, learned in the process that caught you off guard? Well, I, I guess um, the process of writing, right? So I sit down to write a chapter and I, think that I had it all straight. And then I would discover, you know, a week later that I was still researching things mm. to, to fill in the details. Cause I just, you know, I didn't understand the domain as well as I thought I did, whatever, whatever it is I was talking about. Mm. Um, so yeah. yeah so, so like like to, to get a, a little more serious of an answer um, really for me, the, maybe the most profound realization I had was when we started writing the book, I thought it was really about the, uh, the illusion of knowledge and um, ignorance and all that kind of stuff. And Steve was trying to convince me for the longest time of the importance of this idea of outsourcing. And to me, it just felt kind of obvious. And um, at some point, a switch flipped and I realized that this idea of human beings being communal thinkers at our very nature is a really profound and deep um, rethinking of the nature of cognition. Um, you know, we, really as cognitive scientists, we always think about the mind as an individual thing. We're saying, okay, this person's uh, solving this problem, doing this task or whatever. What's going on in their mind? And, and, and I think Steve and I have both uh, come to this kind of new understanding um, that like, that's just a small part of what really yeah. drives human behavior. 
human behavior is determined to a great extent, not by what's happening in an individual mind, but in the way that different minds collaborate and work together and all that kind of stuff. And that's really the level at which uh, a lot of work should be being done. And like This isn't a new uh, realization, like, you know, social uh, scientists, economists, all kinds of other people have been thinking about this stuff for a long time. But for cognitive scientists, it's kind of unnatural because we think about the brain. We think about what's happening inside the brain. And so um, I, I, you know, I, I would argue with Steve for, for a long time about, oh, that's obvious. Of course, that's true. No one's going to care about that. And at some point, uh, I, I really ch- changed on that. So, so, uh, so I, I guess that's a better, a better answer. I absolutely think that is, that is one of the strongest uh, lessons of, of a very good book is that because to me, intuitively, what the knowledge that one has is like, here's the number of books that I've read. Here's the experience that I've had at different jobs in life. And that's the information that I have and feel that I have. And this kind of new understanding of of the social outsourcing, I think, is I, I, I think for for a lot of people unfamiliar with a really uh, revolutionary idea and and something to think about, which leads into my very last question. Again, the book is The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. Uh, Stephen Solomon and Phil. Stephen Sloman. Sloman. What did I say? Solomon? Sloman. Yeah, my my grandfather's name was Solomon, but uh, I'm Sloman. Mm-hmm. And and Phil Fernback, uh, what is so? Let's let's assume so. A bunch of my listeners are going to go and and get this book. Let's assume that there's some listeners out there. They're listening to this in passing. They're not. It's they're not uh, throwing it in their cart online right away. You just want uh, to give them kind of one lesson from uh, the book. One one takeaway that uh that you think would maybe uh, uh make their lives better one of the most important things for people to know generally sneaky part is what you're hoping is that they're going to take this into practice three months later they're going to be like you know though what that was really useful and then they're going to buy your book well i would say the most important take-home message is Next time you get into a political argument with someone, think about why it is you feel so strongly about your position. And do you really fully understand the issues as well as it feels like you do? Mm. Or maybe are you channeling the perspective of the people around you? Which is fine, but you might want to be aware of that. Mm. That's a, that's a, that's a very timely one and not only timely, but probably evergreen <laughs> as, as well. <laughs> yeah. <totally. laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if you want to make sense of, uh, I mean, our world has seemed to uh, go a little bit crazy over the last several years. Like it's been a, 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 a period of, of upheaval and yeah. intense, a lot of intense stuff going on Whew, yeah. and a lot of apparently really nutty behavior by large segments of the population. And um, it's, there's this great paradox, which is um, look at the incredible technology that we have and uh, the incredible scientific developments. And you would, if, if, if I had told you a thousand years ago that we would have all that thing, that stuff, you'd be like, well, 
okay, like obviously people have all kinds of information now. Everyone's going to be rational. We're all going to be like Spock and so on. And yet here we have um, all kinds of conspiracy theories going crazy everywhere. And, and, mm -hmm. and it's just like, it's unbelievable. And if you um, take this individualistic view of the mind, your only uh, recourse is to assume that like everybody's an idiot or mm -hmm. that everybody's like a terrible person. And mm -hmm. if our book does anything, I would hope that it would give you a more sort of nuanced view of the psychology of why people can be so incredibly resourceful and amazing in terms of the kinds of stuff we can do, like building spaceships and electric cars and discovering uh, new particles and traveling into space. And yet how we can also be like so uh, ridiculous a lot of the time. That's sort of the paradox at the heart of, of, of human nature. So um, it, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of really fascinating psychology that underlies what's going on yeah. there. And it's not just about, you know, everybody's an idiot. And so like, I, I would hope that, that that would be the kind of nuance that the, the book would provide to a reader. Yeah, yeah. I am um, one of these days. I might have to like tattoo that, that on myself. So I remember to tell myself that before I start tweeting frustratingly at at people. Uh, That'll be like eight point font on that tattoo. <laughs> um, again, the book's the knowledge, uh, the knowledge illusion. It's fantastic. Uh, listeners, check it out. Thanks for being such wonderful, curious people. And thank you, Phil and Steve, for joining me. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks, Shane.